Previously on Dream Realm. Are, are we gonna do this again, Jordan? Maybe, I don't know. So that's a no. This is just a dream. Hope you're not too stressed out about tomorrow. I'm feeling fine. I don't get why people keep asking me how I'm feeling. Because you're trying the murder case of a century tomorrow. Not a century. Fine, of a half decade. I got called in for a murder today. Oh, what's the scene? That's a weird case. I think this case is solid, but I'm worried that I'm missing something. Especially because the defendant hired Maximilian to chant. I did invite someone else to this dinner already. I just hope you're not still stuck on Hiram. It's Hiram. Jesus, it's like your parents wanted to shower you with a trust fund right after you came out. <laughs> Hiram laughed. <laughs> Listen, I know, I know. That's why I usually go by my last name. Yesik. Yeah, I feel like that's spelled exactly how you said it. You sound like an expert with names, miss. Jordan Furman. You're listening to episode two, the audiobook slash podcast project, Dream Realm. Voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter five. On July 15th, 2059, Rachel Descanella was leaving her work as a bartender. She was working at a small place north of Cardonia off the highway uh, called Shanties, a place known slightly for its beautiful women and its ornery men. Now, Rachel was married, although she and her husband had talked about her place of occupation. Both of them agreed that she would work there until something better came along. Friends and family alike can attest that Rachel's husband, James, was not happy with Rachel working at the establishment. It was a standard Monday at Shanties, Jordan continued, as she looked between the jury, James Disconella, and the judge. The men were a bit rowdy, the beer and liquor was flowing, and the NBA Finals were on, featuring the Golden State Warriors. Everything seemed okay, even as Rachel was cashing and tipping out. She was on the way out, you know, heading home, promising people to see them on Wednesday. And in the early Tuesday morning air on the 15th, one could imagine that Rachel was enjoying the weather as she drove down the highway towards her home with James. That is until she was murdered. What both the defense and I will need you to do is to forego all of the stories you've heard about this case. Now, forget what the media has or has not said, because you're going to hear the facts of this case, and you're also going to hear suggestions. I implore you to keep true to the facts and not to mere opinions. You will see that Rachel's car was found on the side of the highway. You will see that Rachel's car was destroyed with flame while Rachel was inside the car. The defense will say that it was an accident. However, using science, forensics, and evidence, I will prove that James Discanella used his own car to push Rachel off the road into the ditch. He then murdered Rachel, staged her murder as an accident, and torched her car before going home and waking up an hour later to cops at his door. James Discanella and his lawyer, Maximilian DeChant, want you to think that James is a good guy. They want you to forget that Discanella has two assaults on record and should have had a few more had his track record for casual bar fights escalated a bit further. The defense wants you to ignore the family, the friends that can attest to James's character. Better yet, they can attest to James's lack of character. The defense might even paint James up with an excuse regarding an injury he sustained years ago within the Army Reserves. Funny, because a year ago, there's actually pictures of James Discanello ringing the bell at a carnival's Test Your Strength Tower. They might even create a third character 
Maybe a spurned lover of Rachel's of sort, but that too is a narrative designed to distract you from the truth. During this trial, you will hear the evidence which implies that Rachel's demise was murder. You will see how her car was clearly ran off the side of the road. You will see how her charred body was placed in a way which implies she had not died upon impact explosion. You will see how the fire could not have happened due to the sheer impact from Rachel's spin-out off the road. And there is evidence which points to the fact that Rachel died before being roasted alive by her husband. James Disconella is guilty of these crimes and deserves to go to jail. Jordan's powerful opening statement was over, and as such, she sat down. A heavy majority of Rachel's family were already very emotional in the back of the courtroom, while only a couple dregs of James's family had shown up, including his parents and sister. James's immediate family would testify to his character, but between Rachel's family and friends, the two assaults on record, and the other assaults which occurred at a few bars and could be backed up by barn employees and security camera footage, Jordan knew that James's character was shot, if not dead. Miss Furman did an excellent job at sounding correct. Maximilian Duchamp's slight southern accent and inflection was as sweet as sugar tea mixed with candy pieces. But in fact, she is not correct. I appreciate her dedication to the law, although I'm afraid this time she's applying law which does not fit to my client. It is very upsetting what happened to Rachel on the morning of July 15th last year. Her accident has created a lot more trauma for her family, friends, and for James. Their marriage was not perfect, but what marriage is? There were arguments, concerns, frustrations, but all of that was nothing compared to their strong love and union. James was loyal to Rachel, even though she worked at a very scandalous bar. He was loyal even when she had an affair on him. He would have done anything for Rachel, so much so that if possible, he would have chosen to take Rachel's place and die for her behalf. I have some professionals which argue against Miss Furman's theories. Miss Furman is right that accidents follow patterns. A car looks like this, a body looks like that. But there are always exceptions to the rule. Just because Rachel's accident doesn't look like other accidents does not mean it's not an accident. Now, one thing Miss Furman forgot to mention was that my client did have an alibi. He was home at the time of Rachel's accident. In fact, he had a phone call with his best friend Ryan Patters at 12.15 in the morning. Now, Rachel's accident happened between 12 a.m. and 12.30. Now, how is it possible that he had this phone call and managed to stage an accident, kill someone, by the way, and burn a car and a body? Someone should call Superman because I don't even think he can do that. Now, James and I will not be denying some of his troubled past. He's gotten into a few fights back in the day, but he was a young man, and what young man doesn't get into a, a few fights? We have individuals who will credit James' behavior to his drinking, a vice he stopped doing three months prior to Rachel's accident. Now, since prior to Rachel's accident and to now, my client has remained sober, even while under the duress of a trial. Now, if that doesn't speak to my client, I'm not sure what will. I'm ready to stand for the truth. And the truth is that my client is innocent. Maximilian's sugar dust was whipping up into a climax frenzy. I will not stand for the state to twist this tragedy into two tragedies. Now, without further ado, I believe my client and I are ready for this trial to begin. Judge Patrick Fong turned things over to the prosecution. First up came the family and friend testimonies, all of which pointed to James's violent behavior and past. I, I remember we, we had a family barbecue three years ago and James and Rachel were having another fight. 
Rachel's sister looked rather strikingly similar to Rachel. Apparently they had gone to the bar earlier for a mid-afternoon drink and two guys had been hitting on Rachel and James had been so pissed. He viewed my sister as a piece of property and nothing more and I mean Rachel was amazing. She had her degree, you know, a high school degree, but these days it's, you know, hard to get jobs without college degrees. Rachel's father testified, facts were school just wasn't for Rachel. She was good with people, so she became a server and a bartender. Working at shanties brought Rachel good money. You know, she could clear almost 800 a week if she worked five shifts, and she needed to work that too because James was unemployed. You know, he bounced from job to job, getting fired and canned left and right. Rachel had no choice but to work at shanties because James wasn't working. He was very angry about that. He viewed Rachel's job as an attack against him. Rachel's mother explained while glaring across the room at James. He... He was never trying to help their situation. She was always cleaning his messes, making money, supporting their household. He played video games, blamed his life in the army, which he never was truly in, by the way, and at best he was in the reserves until his injury, and you know, a total lie because the, incon the injury was only a problem at his convenience, and he was so selfish, a brute, violent, an alcoholic, possibly a drug user, and I know he cheated on Rachel a few times too. Rachel's best friend, Samantha Cross, added. He would come into shanties a few times, almost getting Rachel fired. He punched a few men in the face, got out of the bar before the cops were called, though. He got banned from that bar, too. James's lawyer says that he's changed, but I don't believe that. People don't change. They just think they have. And the only difference between James a half decade ago and today is that he got smarter. You know, he hit his tracks. He did some proper research. He made sure to avoid the cops. He's still a violent animal, but today he's wearing a suit and a tie to look civil. You know, he's still a savage, and I know he killed Rachel. For each cross-examination, Maximilian DeChant asked two questions. When did this behavior occur? And did they have any testimony to the actual charges? That is, were they witnesses to the actual crimes which James was charged for and on trial for? Both these questions were answered poorly as the behavior happened months, if not a year or more before Rachel's death, and none of these character witnesses had seen the crime, and thus Maximilian's point regarding a changed James Discanella was still valid. And Jordan was not terribly worried, though. She had originally designed the character testimony to flood James Discanella with grime and dirt before Maximilian had washed off that grime and dirt. Now, the jury viewed James at least neutrally, with a bit of disdain, maybe. He may have been a good boy in his recent years, but there was no denying the stories and crimes of his past. And there was a lesson within all of this. People don't change. Of course, Jordan couldn't say this out loud, although she was hoping the jury were piecing that together alongside the pattern of James's ultra-violence. The case broke for lunch, and Jordan made her way over to Rachel's family and friends to thank them for their testimony. Now, after lunch, Jordan would be introducing the bartenders and other bar employees who could add information about James's attacks. The cops who had attended to the scene of those two assaults on record would be coming on after that. How do you think it's going? Rachel's mother asked, looking worried that the testimony wouldn't be enough. I think the truth's out there, Jordan explained, coaxing the family's pain. Even though there hasn't been too much recently against James, that doesn't mean his behaviors have changed. Sam, I thought what you said about the only thing changed about James was covering his behavior was really good. And I think the jury will remember how you all felt. And, you know, with that evidence, too, it should cause his conviction. There was a shuffle of steps behind Jordan, and she turned to face one of the best lawyers within the city. Maximilian DeChant. Excuse me one second. 
Jordan smiled, turning from the family and walking a few yards in silence with Duchant before immediately going on the offense. I'm still surprised you took this case, Duchant. It's a little lowbrow, isn't it? Where the money comes and floweth, I may a drink from the waters. Maximilian's southern charm could strip panties from a woman while easily stripping the paint off a car. Besides, James isn't the richest man. The charges are being covered by a group of his friends. Oh, so the, is it the NRA or perhaps some kind of army group? The latter. The Cardonia Veterans Association hired me on his behalf. Is it because they truly care or because another veteran going down for a crime looks bad on their organization? A mixture of both, but who is to say what reason holds more true to their heart? Maximilian's smile was indicative that he enjoyed this conversation. Can you even call James a veteran? He was on reserves. He did serve, granted only for a short period of time, but that's still more than either you or I did. You should have taken the plea, Jordan shrugged. I'm taking a risk with this one. Maximilian sighed towards the prosecutor as if she had been the one to make a mistake. He told me many times that he didn't do it. So you'd believe a madman who says the sky's green? That's not the same, is it? I mean, James isn't insane. Frankly, your argument is nothing more than the accident doesn't fit the standard. Don't you think that's a little blasé? I think the testimony and the previous charges against your client are enough. I also find it interesting that Ryan Patters, James's friend who shared a 12.15 a.m. phone call, is mysteriously not on your witness sheet. Oh, the phone call, the location of the call, and the length of the phone call can be enough evidence. I'm sure it does. Jordan's smile was rather fake, but perhaps that was what made her confident. Last chance to take a plea, Maximilian. I think I'm good, darling, but thanks for checking in. Maximilian turned and headed over to the men's restroom. Jordan, meanwhile, pulled out her small lunch from her purse, which included dry almonds, a block of cheddar cheese, grapes, and carrot sticks. She immediately dialed one of the top contacts. Hello? Elias DeAngelis muttered when he picked up the line. Elias, I need you to do me a favor, Jordan whispered into the line while munching a carrot. Are you eating right now? I'm multitasking, okay? Damn, no need to be grouchy. I need you to look into Ryan Patters. Apparently, he shared a phone call with James Discanella on the morning of July 15th. The phone call happened at 12.15 in the morning. Apparently, during the accident, Patters isn't going to be called as a witness. That's what intrigues me. Maybe Patters isn't necessary. Or maybe Patters doesn't want to take the stand if the phone call's a sham. I was coming to that conclusion. You just got to give me another 10 seconds. So can you do this for me? Yeah, I can. Perfect. I, I just hope you're not too busy. Nah, just... Juggling this murder case from yesterday, but the leads are looking really dry. How dry? Drier than my ex-girlfriend after I got her wet. I'm confused? You had to be there, Jordan. The phone call ended and Jordan next called Lynn, who had shot her a couple texts earlier that morning. How's it going? Lynn questioned. Maximilian's good, but he's not good enough to gloss over his defendant's past. Nice. What's on the block for this afternoon? Witnesses to some of his informal assaults and the cops who arrested him for the two assaults back in 2054 and 55. Juicy. So far, day one must be in your favor. Eh, we'll see how tomorrow goes. With the character witnesses that Maximilian decides to enter. What's fishy is that James shared a phone call with his friend at 12.15 a.m. You know, the accident happened around that same time. The phone call is being used as evidence, but the friend is not being used as a witness. I asked Maximilian about it, and he deflected, claiming he doesn't need the evidence. Smells like a lot of bullshit. Oh, stinks from miles away. So what are you going to do? I already have a on the case for me. Aw, that's kind of cute that you make him do all the work. 
Seriously, Elias and I will never be in the same sentence as the word aw, so just delete that frame of mind. I'm sorry, I'm just still in the mode of trying to get you a date. Try less, how about that? Lynn laughed and the two quickly got off the phone. Court resumed not too long after, and with her belly full of almonds, plants, and cheese, Jordan called forth the bartenders and servers who were present at a few undocumented assaults which happened between 2056 and 2059. That was an argument regarding which god only a high school was better. You know, James was advocating for his own school while the other guy was advocating for their own, bartender Louis Krasinski explained. I'm pouring and making drinks when all of a sudden James here punched the guy in the chest. The guy backed up, you know, from the blow. We're about to return with his own punch. Thank goodness a couple guys in the back pushed him, you know, away from each other. I kicked James out of the bar right after that. I can't imagine what it would have been like, you know, had we not had those guys holding them back. From each other. Seriously, that close to one another. Shanice LaCrue, a server at a bar and grill called Sean's, explained. I looked over, and after delivering some drinks, they were fighting, and the manager and a couple other guys ended up separating them. There was some blood, but there didn't appear to be any wounds. You know, both guys got walked to their cars. You know, who knows? Maybe they even fought later on the side of the street. You know, I remember the scene so vividly. We don't really have fights that often. Enough, enough. I just kept, I kept saying, but, the, you know, the guys didn't really hear me. They were busy at each other's throats, all because James was hitting on the guy's girl. Bartender Alex Asdale testified. Finally, the other guy, Luke Shellick, he, you know, he got off of James and left the bar with his girlfriend. James wasn't that injured or anything, but he kicked one of the cocktail tables over, so our manager had to remove him. The testimony was the perfect second layer to the triple layer character witness cake, which Jordan was baking. Maximilian devised a similar strategy a la pre-lunch mode. He reminded the jury when these took place, and then asked if these witnesses were present during the morning of July 15th, 2059. He also asked a third question this time around. Had any of them ever been part of an informal assault? Did they know anyone who'd been part of an informal assault? And how did they view themselves or those they knew since said informal assault? It was a rather juicy question since Louis Krasinski and Shanice LeCrow had friends involved in informal assaults. And since bartender Alex Esdale had technically been in an informal assault, they all acted like the informal assault was truly informal, but it was a bit of a blowback. Although Jordan wasn't too worried. Maximilian was smart, though. Neither of those three employees were able to explain that the informal assaults their friends or self were involved in were different from James's own assaults. However, it was the assaults that happened in 2054 and 55 that seemed to have the most weight, as reporting officers Derek Lee Andrews and Seja Calienta gave their testimony. It was pushing onwards past 3 o'clock at that point, although Jordan pushed the testimony through rather naturally as the officers recalled the events from a half-decade previous. We were called in by a neighbor, Officer Derek Lee Andrews explained. The neighbor called in to report that there were loud cries and shouts coming from the house next door, as were what appeared to be the sound of punches. The dispatch radioed in the complaint, and I happened to only be a few blocks away. I raced over there with my partner, Officer DeMonte Tylist, and we arrived on the scene to find that there was indeed a fight going on inside the residence. We could see two men fighting out in the kitchen. And where did you see this? From the large living room window. Derek answered the question directly. So we knocked, pounded on the door. Thankfully, the two men stopped. We asked what had happened, and it appeared that James here had found out his girlfriend was cheating on him with a casual acquaintance, and this acquaintance, Charles Barkley, lived in the house of where the incident was taking place. Now, both men held up the same story. James had arrived to talk things out, and it had been James who had started the physical fight. We ticketed both men with misdemeanor assault and gave them court appearances. From there, both were tried for low-level misdemeanors. I believe Charles Barkley received a fine. What did James receive? A larger fine of $400 plus court fees, four sessions of counseling, and 20 hours of community service to be done before the end of the month. 
In your opinion, did James Discanella get off easy? Jordan asked to the immediate stand of Maximilian. Objection! Officer Derek is not an expert on law. Now, once again, Miss Furman's arguments debase my client compare him against the norm. As responding officer and as a member of the law community, I believe Officer Derek's opinion is crucial here to understanding the entire legal journey of Mr. Discanella. Jordan responded. Judge Patrick Fong allowed for Jordan's question as he believed Jordan's logic and question were in the scope of frame. I believe he got off easy, although at the same time there was nothing to suggest that James Discanella deserved more punishment or justice. Moments later, Maximilian had a field day with Officer Derek Lee Andrews. Can you relate to Mr. Discanella's situation, Officer Andrews? I suppose I too would be upset to find out that a girlfriend was cheating on me with an acquaintance. So... You believe Mr. Discanella's actions were called for? Maybe otherwise a little appropriate? No, I believe the actions were inappropriate, not called for. Violence is never the answer, but you asked if I could relate to the situation. Yes, I could see why Mr. Discanella would want to approach the acquaintance. Is this the first time a man betrayed his lover and maybe has approached the third within such a love triangle? No, we have plenty of cases where spurned lovers and partners commit a crime out of passion. So, so, this was a crime of passion, not violence per se. In this situation, it was both. Passion caused the violence. So, Mr. Discanella was not an insane man, nor was he a psychopath, nor was the violence the motive. In this particular case of assault, it was a crime of passion which resulted in violence. I believe Mr. Discanella did not have the intent to commit violence, but a pattern. Ah, ah, you cannot attest to a pattern. You are here to attest about a crime which happened in 2054, over six years ago. Now, do you think it's possible that a low-level misdemeanor committed six years ago perhaps has nothing to do with an individual six years later? It depends on the person. History repeats itself for the most part, even if it's not on trial for all to see. Let me, let, let me rephrase the question. Maximilian still managed to produce so much sugar within the salty exchange. How often does an act one commits, especially such a low act of an assault misdemeanor, go on to define someone? In James's case, no. Let's be general and vague, such as Mrs. Furman's argument. If we're going to talk about norms and what to expect and all that jazz, how often do you find that people who exhibit behavior six years ago are reflective of that behavior in the present day? Unless you find that people commit a low-level misdemeanor, either use that as a getaway to a felony or never commit a crime again. Although James did, end of questioning. Officer Seja Calienta took the oath under the watch of Judge Patrick Fong before going into detail about the ticket she gave in 2055, adding a second assault to James Discanella's record. I was on West 8th Street, and for those unfamiliar, it's a large street filled with bars and a couple restaurants, and on the weekends, this section of downtown becomes rather unruly and difficult to manage, so we stationed a few cops up and down the street to meter behavior and excessive drinking. Um, this incident took place in November of 2055. It was a Friday night. We overheard the argument between two men. I approached the scene as officer, now Lieutenant George Michelin, followed behind me. We arrived to find two men already engaged in a physical dispute. Did you have any idea what the dispute was about? Jordan followed up. No, we did not. And how did you handle the fight? We separated the men and found that they had been arguing over a woman. Apparently, she had been hitting on both of them. And they both wander, you know, a classic case. We ticketed both men for assault to teach them a lesson as well as to maintain order on West 8th. And what were their sentences? 
The other man involved in the fight had never been sentenced or ticket or arrested, and he had no priors. He was sentenced to uh, two counseling sessions, two alcoholic workshops, 10 hours of community service, and a small fine. Since this was James's second assault in about a year's time, he was given a weekend in jail, eight counseling meetings, 30 hours of community service, and a fine. Do you recall the judge of this case to mention anything about James's habitual repeat of assault? Yes, the judge warned James of ending up in the courtroom again. Maximilian did his cross-examination next. So James never did appear in courtroom again. Do you think he's learned his lesson? On paper, it appears so, although many other testimonies given during this trial have appeared to disagree with your statement. But he was never on trial after 2055. Just because one is not on trial doesn't mean that they're innocent. So perhaps he got into a couple tips, but nothing major as to land in the court of law. The law can only see so much. Plenty of people do illegal things and don't get caught. I'm sure people have done things which we would have warranted a ticket. I asked Officer Derek Lee Andrews whether or not a minor misdemeanor which happened five years ago has any implication for said individual in today's society. Thoughts on that, officer? I think people can change, Seja agreed. But in this case, it does not seem like James has changed. It seems like he's just escalated to murder. I asked the judge to strike her comment from the record. Maximilian barked, and Judge Fong agreed. Maximilian soon wrapped up the interrogation, and Fong called the trial's first day complete. Chapter 6 Day 1 of the Disconella court case had tired Jordan, but she did not have too much recovery time, as Day 2 entered in with the defendant's choice of witnesses. Up in the stand within the morning were James Disconella's parents and sister, all of them weaving together a long, complicated story of James Disconella. It appeared that the narrative the family was used involved James being bullied as a kid, James's dependence on alcohol and the unsavory characters who surrounded James, and not vice versa, of course. The family was doing an excellent job with seeming believable, while making it seem like James was a victim from those around him. When he, when he first had beer, he was 14. I remember because that's when the true James Disconnell changed. He became moody and I, I didn't even think about it. I thought I was... You know, it was changing teenage hormones or something. I watched my son suffer and I didn't do anything. And The women he loved mistreated him. The booze continued to depress him. I watched him struggle for years. And while Rachel and him were not the perfect Disney couple, they loved each other. She, she helped him battle his demons and the booze and the violence. And in the last two years, they've been so happy. These claims of my son from 2054, 2055, these are true. James will not deny what happened then, but that doesn't mean he's a monster that Mrs. Furman wants to present. He's better than this cruel misjustice. Disconella's mother was about to cry from the emotional struggle, and Maximilian paused her testimony to give her a tissue. Jordan side-eyed the jury. It did seem like a few members of the jury were sympathetic to Disconella's mother, Hopefully they weren't too sympathetic to give her back James unscathed, and hopefully they wouldn't view Jordan as a monster during her interrogation of the mother, father, and sister. So throughout all of your son's failings, you stood by his side, Jordan began lightly, Maximilian watching her closely like a mama hawk watching her eggs. I have, I love my son, even though sometimes we would go without speaking or he'd be out and about. So why did he change? Rachel helped him, and then, of course, when her accident happened, he chose to be better for her. That's interesting. So Rachel's death made him a better person. Why was that? I think he wanted to live his best life for both of them. So he didn't become better because he had taken her life and felt guilty, or maybe he didn't feel guilty or wanted to be on his best behavior so the cops didn't suspect anything. 
My son is not that conniving. You know, most people aren't until they have to be. And Jordan switched the line of questions. Is your son religious? No, not really. Did his change come gradually or was it instant? I'd say a mix of the two. So it was Rachel's death which definitively changed him. I, I suppose so. When did you find out about Rachel's death? Later that morning on July 15th. And how did, you know, you find out about her death? Uh, James called me, and it, it was 7 in the morning. He called earlier, but I had only woken up then. Did he leave you a voicemail prior to your phone call? N no, he did not. And what was the sound when he gave you the news? He sounded devastated. What did he say? He, he said there had been an accident and Rachel was dead. Did James seem upset? Yes. When did James start becoming happy again? I don't, I don't think he's been happy throughout the last year at all. How about these photos of his social media account? This was two weeks after Rachel's death. It's a picture of him and some friends at a bonfire. You know, he looks really happy considering the love of his life who changed him for the better, died in a tragic accident. He was moving on. He was doing what Rachel wanted. Ms. Disconello was getting really upset, her face heavily crimson and her eyes beginning to water. So Rachel would have wanted to die. Rachel would have wanted him to be drunk at a bonfire two weeks after she herself was a bonfire. Objection! Mrs. Furman is completely out of order! Maximilian shouted, his tone perfect for a television drama. I am fine with Mrs. Furman's questions, although I agree that her tone should lighten up a bit. Judge Fong turned to Miss Disconella. You can answer when you are able to. That's not what I meant, Miss Disconella explained. I meant that Rachel would have wanted James to move on with life. Two weeks, is that the length of time you would find it acceptable to move on? That's all relative to the person. Has your son ever been violent towards you? Uh, uh, Miss Disconella paused, which was an indication to Jordan that James had been, although she clearly was going to lie for him. Maximilian looked a bit concerned, no doubt he had trained with them to minimize, if not lie, about James's violence at home. Answer the question, Judge Fong said softly, as if not to harm Miss Disconella. There were choice words, but James was never physical with us. So he had a line, even if he chose to fight with men across the town. He, he was a victim of circumstance. He stood up when he was being mistreated, and I don't get all of the hate against my son. How is he a victim of circumstance? He chose to go to this man's house in the assault of 2054. He chose to go to West 8th and engage with the man in 2055. He chose to argue with his girlfriend, then fiance, then wife, about things such as where she worked. He got into bar fights more often than not, it appears. So, you know, tell me. Tell me how does that make him a victim of circumstance? Because he was bullied into drinking? Because he's a white straight male and that's what these kind of people do? If he's not the victim, then who's the real perpetrator? Miss Disconella opened her mouth but did not speak. Exactly. You know that your son is the perpetrator. You just don't want to say it. I don't think that at all. Then back to the original question, who is the real perpetrator? Life. Miss Disconella's answer was rather cliche, but it had saved her ass. Do you think your son is capable of murder? Jordan knew that her best chance of breaking one of the family members was with this mother. She would not let up until she had exhausted all possible questions. No, I don't think so. Even with everything he has done, you believe your son could never be capable of murder. Years ago, I might have said maybe, but I stand by my decision and say no, he's not capable. 
So he's changed that much. You don't know my son as well as you think you do. The mother within Miss Discanella finally came out with a loaded hiss. You don't know his story. I know enough about a story to charge him. I'm not looking for a sad narrative. Do you think everyone who's been victimized turns out to not be a perpetrator? There are plenty of people, plenty of people, who went through hell who then didn't turn hell around on other people. Objection, objection, there's no question. Is there anything you want to ask, Jordan? Judge Fong asked, and instead of continuing, Jordan pulled back. She gave similar questions both to Mr. Disconella and Jason's sister, Tina. However, both held better than Miss Disconella, and soon there was a break for lunch. Once again, Jordan called Elias, who didn't pick up. They had talked last night, and Elias explained that he was going to visit Ryan Patters that morning. Jordan was wondering if indeed he had visited Patters so far. Instead, though, she ate her lunch, affirmed Rachel Disconella's family, and looked over some notes. With only two minutes of lunchtime left, Elias called her back. She quickly answered the phone. What happened? Ryan Petters doesn't want to testify because he wasn't really on the phone with James. You're kidding. Nope. Apparently Ryan lost his phone that night, so he doesn't know who James was talking to, but it wasn't him. You're kidding. No, I'm not, so you can stop saying that. Elias laughed softly. <laughs> so when's Maximilian going to enter that evidence? I have no idea, but the second he introduces that phone call, this evidence, it becomes usable. Maybe he knows, and that's why he's not going to bring it up, but he mentioned the phone call in the opening statements. Jordan took a moment to think. Will, will Patters testify against James? That's out of the question. At least I know this. Wait, do you think we can get someone to confirm the fact that Patters lost his phone? I'll ask Patters. I have his number. I can call him now. I'm just on my way to a murder site. Another murder already? But you just started investigating one the other day. Well, murders don't wait for men, Elias joked, although it was more of a miss, if anything. I gotta get back to court. Thank you, Elias. Ah, peace out, Jordan. She returned to the courtroom, and a minute later, the trial kicked back into place. James ended up taking the stand on the second day of the trial. Maximilian Duchamp practically walked with James through his relationships, his vices, his improvements in life, and then the night and morning of the accident which took his beloved wife. James even got a bit teary-eyed, and for a moment, Jordan felt genuinely moved. Until she remembered that this bastard had killed Rachel. Thankfully, Maximilian DeChant did bring up the phone call. So you were home and on the phone with your best friend, Ryan Patters. Correct. We uh, had a phone call around 12.15, which lasted 15 minutes. What happened on that phone call? Yeah, we just talked about a couple random things from the day. Some sports talk. I wasn't out at the bar, so I didn't get to see him. I just wanted to speak with him real quick. Jordan stood up at that moment. Your Honor, can we have a sidebar? Jordan asked. Well, Maximilian looked upset at her demand. Judge Fong, I'm in the middle of talking with Mr. Disconella. Your Honor, please. And your office would be preferable. Judge Fong looked confused, but Maximilian looked passively outraged. After excusing the jury, Jordan joined Maximilian and Fong within the latter's chambers. The office was moderately decorated with some of Fong's family heirlooms, law books, and the occasional framed photo. Your Honor, James Descanella just committed perjury on the stand. This friend, Ryan Patters, told my investigator that his phone went missing that night, and he can't attest that he was on that phone call with James. This means that there are many possibilities, mainly that James Descanella did create an alibi for the very purpose of having one when his wife died. Your Honor, that sounds rather skeptical. What's more skeptical, Maximilian, is that you didn't have Patters on your witness list. Now... 
Why is that? We didn't need him. Or you knew that Patters didn't want to testify. And even though maybe you didn't know he lost his phone that night, you should have known something was wrong. Or that's probably why you did. And that's why he's not here to testify. While the verdict is out on Patters, I have to agree with Jordan that it is rather unorthodox that you didn't have Patters on your witness list, Judge Fong acknowledged. However, unless Patters testifies, we cannot truly put James on blast for perjury. We can remove the phone call as an alibi, then. Maximilian sighed, trying to minimize the situation. But even if we acknowledge the phone call didn't happen, James Iscanella just lied on the stand. Jordan added, Your Honor, something needs to be done. Judge Fong sighed and leaned back into his chair for a moment. Because we cannot verify the claim, we will strike the alibi from the record. We will not put James in for perjury, but the jury and we will all acknowledge that there is no alibi. Your Honor, without the alibi, Maximilian, your case does not rest solely on the alibi, as you stated in your opening statement. I will not grant any elongation. We will now close out court for today and return tomorrow anew. Judge Fong stood up. But for now, the court will ask the jury and ourselves to strike the alibi from the record. Chapter 7 after a successful impromptu date at Ducking Lights, Jordan went home with Hiram Yesick's phone number and a smile on her face. The following afternoon, they began texting with their official first date scheduled that upcoming Wednesday. He had asked her where she would like to eat, and she had left it within his court. So Hiram ended up taking them out for sushi in downtown Cardonia. How did you find this place? Jordan asked as they sat down. The walls were painted peaceful sky blue. There were some beautiful light arrangements and the occasional traditional Japanese painting. Most of the employees themselves were Japanese, implying that it might be a family business. I found this place during my freshman year at Cardonia University. I've been coming back constantly since. What brought you here the first time? <laughs> it was actually a date with this girl named Rochelle. Turns out she was rather commanding in where she wanted to go and who she wanted to be. After the first date, I knew that I couldn't be more than friends with her. Oh, so is it the same thing destined to happen for you and me? Is this where you like to find out if you just want to be friends? You've been doing an excellent job so far making me want a lot more than friendship. <laughs> I'm sure I'll ruin that at some point. Hiram laughed while the waiter came over and offered water and other beverages and both decided to try the kamikaze, a sake-based cocktail. The server vanished quickly, leaving them to talk again. So how was work today? I'm handling the standard small misdemeanors. You know, nothing that doesn't take more than a quick file read and an appearance. I'm sure you can't tell me about the cases, but uh, give me an example of what you dealt with today. Shelly's a 52-year-old female who is unemployed and practically homeless. You know, she most likely uses prostitution to gain some kind of finances while she is on government assistance, but... You know, she was ticketed for trespassing because she spent a night sleeping on the property of a no-tolerance company who discovered her and promptly called the police. You know, now, she probably didn't do anything wrong, except for the idea of invading the private space of a company. Although, in reality, the company could have let this go, or perhaps cared about Shelley's humanity. But instead, they have tossed her to the justice system and for us to deal with. And it all comes with caveats. You know, such an infringement doesn't really deserve any jail time. It wasn't like she was trespassing with the intent to provide harm to the company. Shelley doesn't have the finances to pay for a trumped-up fine and court fees either. So do we turn her to community service? Especially when she herself is in need of community service. That's it's a loaded enchilada. So what did you end up doing? 
We got her free therapy and in talks with relocation programs. It's part of our court-mandated punishment, I suppose. So she kind of gets more help than hurt from this misdemeanor. She can get the misdemeanor expunged in two years as well, thankfully. And it's a misdemeanor, not a felony. Interesting. The waiter came over with the two kamikazes and took their food order. Interestingly enough, neither really turned to the menu. Hiram knew his order by heart, while Jordan knew what kind of sushi she was going to end up getting anyway. The server left once again, and the conversation shifted. How about you? Did you deal with any Shelleys today? The same usual. Shelleys who wish to change themselves, but they're not ready to change their habits. Shelleys who love the sensation of the drugs and alcohol they're addicted to, but hate the problems that it causes around them. It's difficult. It's like driving a car west and then turning and heading east. There's no true progression, at least not for a little while. But then you turn around again, and finally it gets to a point where these clients are exhausted. After all, they're running in circles for the hope of finishing the race, but I'm still there. I'm holding down the fort. I don't know how you do it. I can't say the same thing about your job, but what do you like to do outside of the workplace? I suppose I go to bars and restaurants, so you don't have any hobbies. It's hard for me to separate myself from my work. Ah, so how long has work consumed you? I suppose for the last four years since I graduated law school. So you haven't done anything since. No, I wouldn't say that. It's just I, I don't have hobbies like stamp collecting. You know, on weekends I go to the gym, do some long workouts, and I'll go out with friends here and there. It's just that people are busy, and it's weird doing certain things alone, honestly. I I can't just go to the Cardonia Art Museum by myself. That, that, that feels weird. I don't think it'd be weird for you to go alone. Then I wish I had your confidence, because it feels weird to me. You just gotta learn that there's nothing wrong with doing something by yourself. I'm not that depressing where I'm alone all the time. I guess I just, you know, think in order to do something, you have to have friends. <laughs> you have friends, I'm sure. I do. <laughs> but they're all back home in San Francisco, you know, all with boyfriends they want to marry and sire kids with. You know, I'm that oddball of the friend group. I still have friends from college, you know, but they're they're doing their own thing. And we all, you know, still occasionally meet on the dream realm, you know, both groups, actually. It's really the only free time we all seem to share. What about here in Cardonia? Besides Judge Lynn Rexstrom, I don't really know anyone. I mean, I'm getting there. But that's the reason I went out to Ducking Lights the other day. I'm trying to find people to vibe with. So you are doing something then? I guess. I mean, when I hear, are you doing something? It just makes me seem like I have to be doing the most insane, crazy, social media approved, fun, fantastic thing ever. And rarely is life like that. So you're against the norm. <laughs> God, that sounds so stupid. I mean, everyone thinks they're different. But we're also similar, because we just conceive difference in our minds, you know. Oh, I like that imagery. You know, I wonder if people think the way I do. They have to ask these questions or propose these thoughts. I don't know. There's no way to measure that. You know, life is really easy to escape from these days. So maybe people don't ask these questions because they're caught up in the fantasy. A bit of fantasy is good. Oh, I mean, I agree. I just think relying on fantasy isn't good. Well, I see clients all the time who use fantasy as a means of surviving in reality. They don't want to think about the traumatic experience, you know, of violence, rape, sexual abuse, emotional, mental trauma. They'd rather drink, dose themselves to drugs, 
then you know they'd rather do that than to confront all that pain the confusion anger the questions like your questions drugs and alcohol create a secondary reality almost like a fantasy and people use it to escape just like people use social media the internet and streaming and the dream realm it's just to escape so you think escapism is a good thing well I think escapism as a momentary use to recover to heal and get away from terrible reality that's that's definitely good but addiction to an escapism that's when it's bad escapism well it's helped many people deal with the unfortunate status of their lives and in some cases the best people in the world had to retreat from their realities upon occasion so what's your escapism well I guess my escape would be traveling. That's one of the things I like doing. Taking a weekend, venturing somewhere, going camping, hiking out to the nearby area. I've actually explored a really good chunk of Northern California. I would love to go exploring like that. It calms down a rather active heart. You say that as if you think I'm an active person. Oh, you totally are. Jordan smiled and Hiram smiled back, but before this conversation could take new root, the sushi rolls appeared in front of them as the server quickly left the table. Serious conversation aside, thank you very much for taking me out to sushi. Of course, Jordan. Thank you so much for listening. For more podcasts and work done by me, Matt Rebar, check out my website at www.mattrebar.weebly.com. Tweet or Instagram me at Reebstar, H-R-I-B-S-T-A-R. And if you missed it, all 10 episodes of season one, Unconscious, Subconscious, are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. Until next time.